Good morning, Bread of Life. The sixth commandment we come to today, you shall not kill. Um, it only took me about two minutes on Monday as I picked up this passage that I realized that in contemporary terms, we'd have to address things like abortion and euthanasia and just war and capital punishment. And I intend to do all of that. But in a week of uh, prep and a 20-minute sermon, um, you can't go very far. And we'll disagree around these issues. We're going to have divided opinions. And so my effort here and desire is to bring this text before us to challenge us all, um, but not to resolve any of the, of the disagreements or any of the confusion that we have, since these are hard issues. So I'm going to open up the law a little bit and then move into some of these really kind of uh, controversial, difficult issues. We start with um, just the simple command itself, you shall not kill. In the Hebrew, um, the word is two, the, the command is two words, um, lo tirzak, uh, ratzak is the verb here, to kill. And um, we need to know that there are three or four words in the Old Testament and in Hebrew for killing. Um, and this one's pretty unique. It's not used very often and it's used in very specific places. So it's used in both lists of the Ten Commandments. If you might remember, we're studying Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so this same word appears in both commands, Tirzak, you shall kill. Um, the word only occurs a few more times in Deuteronomy, but it occurs, this um, Ratzak, this word to kill, uh, 21 times in Numbers 35. I mean, that's extraordinary. Like this is, That's the, what the chapter is all about, and that's really where we get the significance of the meaning of this word. So what's in Numbers 35? It's a law about cities of refuge um, and a manslayer. So in, in, the, in the context of the law, uh, it sets up kind of a narrative um, situation. You've got um, two men in a field and one kills the other one accidentally. And so the manslayer, the accidental manslayer, may flee to one of these six cities of refuge that are set up. Now the cities are managed by the priests and so you can flee there and the avenger of blood can't come and kill you on the way. And the avenger of blood, you know, is somebody who wants to exact kind of a just decision in the moment. And he can't. Now, the person who kills unintentionally, that's Ratzak. So he's not killed intentionally. But the, the manslayer, or the, or the, the avenger of blood who's coming, he wants to Ratzak. He wants to kill the man in anger. And so the same verb, the same is, is being laid out in um, both situations. But as we find, as the law opens up, there's two kinds of killing in mind here. So once the man's in the city, he's not allowed to be pursued anymore for death. And he has to live there. He's supposed to live there until the death of the high priest before he can go home. That's to protect him from um, vengeful death on his own. Now, the second question, the law opens up. Well, how do we know he's innocent? How do we know it was unintentional? Isn't that disputed? And the law addresses that. And, and it does so in this way. It says there need to be two witnesses that testify to the intentions of the act. That's really important, right? It's um, a move to say that people don't settle their disagreements on their own. They need a third party, you know, our juries or our judges. Somebody else who's dispassionate, somebody who's not involved in the situation needs to consider the evidence and decide, yes, this was um, uh, a, a murder, or intentional or not. Now, the criteria for whether or not this is an intentional murder or not is whether the person laid in wait, right? So it's premeditated. If they were ready for, they'd saved up, they'd been um, planning this thing, then that's um, a, a form of killing that's outlawed. Or if it's in anger, right? So if it's in rage, then that is a murder, a ratak that's not allowed. 
And in this kind of paradox, if that's the case, if it's found that the, that the Ratzak, the killer, did so, either premeditated or in anger, then he shall be killed, Ratzak. So the word is used for both kinds of killing. But the, what the law does here in Numbers 35, it says it's for, there's, there's killing that will be accidental. But if it is under these conditions of anger or of premeditation, then death is the penalty. And it turns out, I'll mention this again, that the death penalty in Hebrew law was probably a maximum, not a mandatory sentence. It meant you can go this far and no further, depending on the circumstances. So that at least gives you the sense that what's in view here is not killing in general, because clearly the law allows for, commands killing. It's a certain kind of killing that degrades, that despoils, and upsets humanity. Okay, second, I want to move to another passage. We'll go through three quick ones here. So that's just that Numbers 35 passage. Now, Genesis 9. I had us read that in our Old Testament today. If you're sitting there and you haven't um, heard the readings, then you can read Genesis um, 9, 1 to 6 or 7 is all you need to read. And it's this instruction that comes from God to Noah. Noah's been on the ark for uh, 40 days and 40 nights of rain, and then this other extended time of waiting for the earth to dry out. And now God addresses him and he says to all of life, you know, go be fruitful and multiply and enjoy all the creation. But you shall not eat. You can eat the food of the, of the lamb, but not anything with its blood. Blood and all these laws signifies the life, the respect of, of an animal or a human being. So you can't eat the blood. And then God goes on to say, whoever sheds the blood of another man by the hand of a man, his blood shall be shed. So there's this penalty. Again, you get the, you shall not kill, but if you do, that person who does so, his blood shall be shed by another man. Now, here's the reason I mentioned this passage. Why? Because the man is made in the image of God. So it's not a matter of sheer abstract justice that's in view here. It's not, um, it's not simply take a life because he did this, like some echo or equality of laws. It's that this crime in particular strikes at the heart of God and who he is. We are image bearers. And if somebody strikes at that life, there ought to be a due penalty for that. Now, um, one of the really important reasons that I raise this is it comes uh, into a point of co confusion for a number of people. This law, um, blood for blood, is repeated in a couple of places. In Deuteronomy, it's repeated this way. It says, um, uh, life for life, blood for blood, hand for hand, foot for foot, eye for eye. You know, this lex talion or the law of talion. Um, and it's sometimes mistakenly thought that God's saying, well, you should take an eye for an eye and take a tooth for a tooth. And that is not what the law is doing. We don't steal from the thief as a punishment. We don't rape the rapist as a punishment. That's not what the, the law is prescribing. It's saying that the punishment has to be proportional to the crime. So life for life in this case, or blood for blood, means it's got to be proportional. And this is the only law where the maximum proportion is, is signified as death, not because it's simply what you did. That makes any sense. I mean, it's a, it's a finite distinction. Well, you killed, now you get killed. No, it's because you struck at the heart of the divine image. And God's glory is known through human life. And so if you strike there, your life will be subject to it. Now, the, the significance of that now is that what's in view is the preservation of life because that's the image and glory of God. That's why there's such a severe penalty. And we'll see this as we go through the laws. The command, do not kill, 
is a, is a flip side of the whole idea that and in the process do everything to uphold and preserve life. So the last passage I'll introduce moves us forward to this. Um, Deuteronomy has a series of laws about life. Now this will require a bit of explanation. I wish I had a little chart here. I could show this. We're, we're walking our way through Deuteronomy 5, the Ten Commandments. Uh, two weeks ago, in, um, I spoke about the Sabbath law. And I said, hey, the Sabbath is about a whole lot of other things. Well, you move forward to Deuteronomy 12 to 26, the section, the main section of Deuteronomy. Those Ten Commandments get spelled out in further detail and examples. So in Deuteronomy 15 and 16, we get all kinds of Sabbaths. We have three annual festivals. We have um, triennial ties. We have a seven-year release of debts and a seven-year release of slaves to their home. The Sabbath gets spelled out in all these kinds of rest and replenishment in the community. Last week, I preached on um, honor your mother and father, and I said this um, indicates all kinds of ways we respect and honor authority. In Deuteronomy 17 and 18, indeed, there's a whole body of laws about judges, priests, prophets, kings, and how they interact, the limits of their authority, and how we know to trust them and what they are allowed to do. So you get authority spelled out now in Deuteronomy. And today we deal with, you shall not kill, the sixth commandment. Deuteronomy 19 to 22 are all laws about life about killing and preserving of life. This um, passage that we had in Numbers, I just mentioned about the manslayer who runs to the um, cities of refuge. That passage is mentioned there in Deuteronomy 19. And I'll mention a couple of more, just so you get the sense of what the law is trying to spell out about do not kill. What it means is be vigilant, be thoughtful about preserving all of life. There's um, early on in this section, immediately there are laws for warfare. And so the law says when you go to war and there's a young man in the army and he's newly married and has not consecrated or established his home, he shall not go to war but go home for a year. Now probably what's in view there is he hasn't had children yet. He hasn't begun to establish inheritance. Think of Naomi in the book of Ruth. The absence of men makes these families vulnerable. They don't have laborers and, and a balance of being able to create more kids, which is what runs the home in terms of agriculture. So if this home is not established, send the young man back. Preserve the life-bearing fruit and the capability of that family. When you come into conduct in war, the law goes on to say, don't kill the fruit trees. I mean, it's an interesting law. Don't, because the fruit trees, it says, are for food. And if you go to war and you're being um, uh, passionate and being thoughtless, you'll kill the fruit and you'll inhibit the life in that land among its animals and its people. Cut the trees only that you need. I mean, this is so interesting when you think about warfare. Cut only the trees that you need. Don't just cut them for any reason. And God says, for are the trees human beings that you'll slay them as an enemy? Right? Don't just slay for any reason. It's got to be a necessity. There's got to be a judgment in place. Is this taking of life justified? And fascinating that trees are in view for God. There's a law in Deuteronomy 22 in this section that I quote often in church or in different sermons that says, if you come across a bird's nest in the field and there's a mother and two young, eat the young if you're hungry, if you need food, right? Preserve life, but leave the mother. And the significance of the law is because she can reproduce and keep gaining life. If you take the mother, young will die. If you take them all, you've cut off life. 
You can see how the laws begin to preserve life as the goal of this command. Um, two other commands in this section that are important because we'll come back to them. If you punish somebody in a criminal punishment and they're deserving of a beating, you shall give them 40 beatings and no more. Right? We know this is shortened to 39 lashes in the New Testament when it's referred to. The point here is that a punishment is due, but it can't be degrading to humanity, lest you degrade his humanity is what the law says. If you punish somebody by hanging them on the tree, you should not let them hang in a tree overnight. These laws are preserving human dignity. Even if there's um, death, um, there is something about life in all of its fullness that's meant to be protected in these laws. Okay, so let's take those forward into these kind of modern controversies and, and issues and dilemmas that we have in our world today. And I'll go through three of them briefly and just try and challenge us to think hard about them. And the first I'll deal with is the just war theory or war in general. Can we kill people in conflict? And Christians fall into three camps historically. Uh, the first camp is um, no conflict at all whatsoever. No nations should go to war. This is the utopian view, right? If we simply love, um, nations will come together in harmony. Um, and so the early church, there was some of this. There should be no bloodshed at all in 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 culture and communities. No governments should fight. Um, by the third, second, and third century, um, Jesus hasn't come back. They had a pretty high expectation Jesus would come back. And so you begin in the Christian church to allow for governments to go to war, but not Christians. Um, many, many Christians follow this because Jesus says, you know, if you're, somebody slaps you on your right cheek, you should give them your left also. And so this is taken as um, um, conflict may be necessary in a fallen and sinful world, but Christians can't take up the sword. They can be in government, but not you know, in, in um, armies and in conflict. And then by the fourth century, uh, in fifth century, you have this third area, which represents a good deal of our modern Western governments today, that there are just wars that Christians can participate in because there are heinous oppressions and death and oppressors that ought to be fought against. Now there's an increasing sense that Jesus is not coming back, that the nations haven't all begun to hold all olive branches and come to peace with one another. In fact, the opposite. And so this need that maybe we can fight um, imperfect wars in order to gain freedom and protection from the oppressed. Now, there's one thing I think it's worth mentioning here, where this law comes from, the just war theory, usad bellum, um, in bello, the, the, the idea that we conduct uh, war only in the most just circumstances. It originated with this, this is really kind of interesting, I think, is with that situation in De um, Deuteronomy 19 or Numbers 35, is the, um, the partial, the impartial witnesses who decide the case of whether something's murder. So the church is thinking, look, you can't go to war on your own out of self-defense because that's vengeful. That's the very thing forbidden by the law. It needs to be another party, you know, United Nations of the modern world that says, no, 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 this is a place where there's an oppressor and you can go and defend your, this oppressor. Uh, uh, Luther is looking back at this um, original orientation of the law and he says this, although you do not need to have your enemy punished, your afflicted neighbor does. And so the Christian can have an obligation in this third area of Christianity to fight just wars for the sake of the oppressed. And as the centuries unfold, we know very well that that gets expanded, that, um, the, the, that aggressors who aggress and cross a nation put the people 
and the and the economy and its and its livelihood and its women and its children and everyone at stake. And so we can defend a nation from oppression. And to today's war, well, if we have a reasonable sense that somebody may, we can um, preempt war. And there's new kinds of movement around when is it really just to go into war? And it's not easy for um, Christians to enter into this world, but I think we should be aware of them. I've always, um, um, especially living in Ithaca, I've had a number of people on a more progressive slant when they find that I've been in the military, my children are in the military, will give that eye roll, right? That, um, and you know they're looking at you as such a violent person. And one of the things I've always said is, well, the military doesn't go to war, politicians do. And Democrats and Republicans no less or more than the others. The, the media may not cover it, but we've not changed any of our foreign presence in foreign nations during the time of our um, modern American governments. We're involved everywhere, and the government doesn't go. The government sends us. Um, sends us. The military doesn't uh, preempt and go on its own. Um, but the irony of that is that we're the ones, the military, required to study this idea of just war theory, not the politicians and the voters. And so they're not aware of the language and the limits that are meant to preserve life. So just a quick rundown of them. The, the very beginning of just war theory is that there must be a just cause. There must be something in uh, of oppression or of suffering or of violence that requires somebody to enter in violently. And so there's this idea too of proportionality. Is this require violence or could it be done by negotiations or other means? The just cause has to overcome all these other simpler doubts or ideas. And is it a verifiable good cause? Um, is there a likely exit from this conflict? Right? So it's not just enough to have a uh, just um, cause. You've got to know you can get out of this thing in a reasonable amount of time or think very highly the possibility that you can or you can't start because the suffering and the loss of life will be too high. So you can see these things are preserving life. The proportionality, weapons no greater than that are needed. They don't cause injury greater than are needed. The um, law of discrimination, you shall discriminate carefully between combatants and non-combatants. Christians, at the very least, ought to understand those things. We vote. We run for office. More of us should, so that we can institute these things that limit the suffering in warfare. I mean, there's no question that there was extraordinary violence by people like Pol Pot or by the Nazis among the Jews in Germany or among the ISIS and um, Al-Qaeda, some horrible kinds of behavior. But the question becomes, is it worthy of stepping in I think of the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis and Afghanistanis and others who've died in the Middle East under American wars, and the thousands and thousands of widows and orphans left behind that destabilizes these cities and these communities massively. Syria, we could think of too. That has to be a question. It's not merely can we win. It's not merely can we put down an oppressor. Do we leave life behind in conflict? That ought to be the Christian sense of warfare. Whether we like it or not, we can vote to limit the harm done, the life taken. Second, maybe more emotional for us, abortion and euthanasia. I'll address abortion more, but they both are significant because there was a, a moment in medicine. Medicine had always been in this tradition of healing and do no harm and the Hippocratic Oath. And there came a point in medical technology where we were able to take a life safely whether at the end of life or at the beginning. 
And so this new moment entered in with massive ethical applica- uh, um, implications. Can we take lives? And I think we need to be challenged wherever we are on this spectrum, because it is a spectrum about what we think about children and life. And I think if I could say what's, um, I think, um, addressing both sides, we ought to all know and be honest about the beginnings of the abortion movement. It didn't begin in the women's rights movement. It began with the sexual revolution. And the women's right movement was against it initially and then picked it up later on. Because in this, in this time, as this, these come together, we find very quickly that it's not merely about whether you can abort a child or not. It's about this whole livelihood of the woman and the family that are having the child. There's a question of life beyond just whether the child dies or not. So if there's a word for the left, I think it would be this. When this arose, the, 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 the ones pushing for this law were men because they wanted to act indiscriminately about sex, or in many ways, this is what's being pushed. You can have mistresses. You don't have to worry about heirs and financial ties from your sexual indiscretions. I think the church there, from my standpoint, has to stand against that. We can't um, have pleasure at all costs. It doesn't matter, I think. It's interesting. We get tied up a lot in this debate about whether a, a child is a soul or is it a person yet. And I think that's somewhat irrelevant, and it's not probably ever going to resolve itself. We know already from like the Old Testament law, you can't kill trees unnecessarily. There's a whole principle of preserving life. And is indiscriminate pleasure sufficient to take life? You see, that has to be in the question. Do we want to protect that kind of behavior and jeopardize life? And I think that gets lost, and the church needs to stand with a voice there. On the right, though, of course, the, the, the strict stance against the law failed to address that central issue of life. What about the mother? What about the family? What about the context and the economics of having children at home? What about the health of the mother? And so you have these whole other sets of questions that can't be settled by a simple don't kill. They have to be attended to, and there have to be really hard questions asked about what it means to preserve life. What are the criteria? And these don't even out and fall out real easily for us. Case by case, these things can be different. But they have to be asked honestly. And there's one issue that's been in our community with at least three families. Today we have this very active, very attentive movement to protect the rights of those with mental disabilities, their education, their place in society, their equality with us. And we have the same culture that encourages parents in the medical community to abort those children when they're um, seen in the womb. I'm not trying to blame either side too much. It's a conversation that has to be thought through that's never been detailed. Why do we have these two values of these people? That they could be a burden to us, but not be a burden to us and be beautiful. That's a conversation the church honestly has to have if it thinks about the beauty and goodness of life that's made in the image of God. Finally, uh, what about incarceration and the death penalty? I'll treat these together. Um, can we take life? Can we take somebody in a case of a, a court or a, a judgment? And I think the Catholic Church, as you might know, in 2018 came and changed their catechism, Pope Francis did, to say that, that the um, taking of life is inadmissible. And, he, and his reasoning for doing so is because Jesus said you can't defend yourself. And, and, and act vengefully. 
But the government doesn't act vengefully when it takes life. It acts as a judgment. That's the point. Maybe it doesn't do that well. But, the, but Francis, it's been recognized as addressing it in the wrong part of, of ethics. The point is, can the government act to preserve security in its society? And it has to be able to do so. Does it need death? Maybe not. But I think that was Francis's error, is not to recognize that the government has a responsibility to protect its place and its citizenship. I think the other loss there, when we think only in terms of capital punishment, is that every penalty in the criminal courts takes an exactment, it takes an ounce of human life. Think of when people are released from prison, they say, that was five years, that was 10 years of my life. That's precisely what it is. The, the, um, the punishment is always taking away life. A fine for breaking the law for a speeding ticket impinges on your freedom in life. And so when we think about capital punishment, we can't only think about what's well, wrong to kill and everything else is okay. There has to be this much deeper question. Are our laws just? Are our punishments proportional? Does the beating of a man 40 times degrade his humanity? Does Mike Brown laying in the street all day in Ferguson, Missouri uphold human life? You see, that's the kind of thing the law is looking at. Does our criminal prosecution system value those made in the image of God? And Christians ought to know that. Chris Wildeman's been helped to me over the last year with this in my readings. And one of the things about incarceration in our world today, if you're a black man who does not finish high school, there's a 70% chance you will go to prison. That means significant misdemeanor, means a felony charges you will go to prison, disproportionate beyond belief. Now here's how this plays out, because I think this is interesting if we're thinking about life. You're in a, some of these cities with, Mac, with um, mandatory minimums, right, for, for um, misdemeanors. And you go to the courts and you meet the court and your prosecution system is a defense attorney, a public defense attorney, because you can't afford anybody more than that. But you've got a serious crime on your hands because the mandatory minimum, if you're guilty, you're going to jail. And the prosecutor is rewarded for maximum sentences. So you go to jail as the young black man. You come home five years, four years later. You've been in jail. You haven't worked for five years. You have a criminal record. You can't get a job in many, many cases. And so now what's happened through our criminal justice system? Somebody cut off from income that might go to themselves or to their family. And so you create this context where criminal activity is sometimes the only way to earn a living. And why do we do that? Because we have a criminal justice system that has exploded in the last two decades. The number of people in prison, the kinds of uh, penalties that are administered, the rewards for prosecutors. There's no simple solution to this whole significant um, situation that we have. But it's before us and it affects life. The number one people who re receive abortions in our day are black women who are in those communities very often where the family is jeopardized. And we have to bring these conversations together to say, what does it mean with death, with life, with abortion, with medicine, with prisons to preserve life? I leave that before us today as a burden, not simply to fall back into my political party and my friendships, but to say, what does it mean for us to labor to preserve, to protect the sanctity of life in our midst. I close with this, with this beautiful image Paul gives us in our reading 
today in the New Testament of Jesus, the Son of God, accused falsely in prison, given a maximum sentence above his debt, and dies willingly to give life. And he does so more than simply to give us eternal life. We know that. But the Lord Christ called us into this world, into this kingdom, so that between now and then, we might be people in this world who seek and preserve life. Amen.